Okay, good afternoon everybody. Thank you very much for coming today. Uh, my name is Alex Colas. I am the head of the department for politics in Birkbeck and I also teach international <coughs> security. Um, and I'm involved with a number of colleagues in um, a group that we have on population, environment and resources. It's a research group, a fairly informal one, but we're slowly building up into something a bit more concrete, and the most concrete thing that's come out of that is a new master's program, which is the not-so-hidden uh, agenda of today, uh, namely to launch the, the new master's in uh, global environmental politics. That's a master's that we're teaching across the Department of Politics and also the Department of Geography, Environment and Development Studies. So this is both um, a debate, a discussion about one, if not the most pressing issue um, of global politics, but it's also a possibility, it's a, an opportunity, I should say, um, to showcase for those of you that are not Birkbeck uh, students or thinking of coming here, and also those that are Birkbeck, current Birkbeck students, um, the kinds of approaches, the kinds of thinking that we, we do in those various departments on the politics of global climate change. It is a vast issue. Um, the programme itself is concerned with questions, words or concepts like the Anthropocene, um, like climate refugees, like demographic bombs, uh, like um, or demographic bulges, um, notions of geopolitics, of fossil capital. Um, all of those fall under the purview of what I think is going to be a very exciting um, master's degree. Um, but today I've got three colleagues in, from Birkbeck who are surely going to introduce themselves, one from politics, two from GEDS as we call it, and hopefully uh, Nick, and I was dreading this because I hope I'm going to pronounce his surname uh, properly. Cernicek, um, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, Nick Cernicek is hopefully going to join us shortly, um, presumably he's delayed. Uh, Nick is the uh, author of a very... Uh, challenging, very polemical book, I think, called Inventing the Future. He's one of two authors of a, a, an accelerationist manifesto that came out three or four years ago. Um, I don't want to speak for him. I'm, I very much hope that he'll come today. But uh, in, in summary, it's, um, I think he's, he and his, his colleague Alex Williams are taking on the Marx and Engels of the Communist Manifesto, where they say that the, uh, the most revolutionary class is the bourgeoisie in the Communist Manifesto. And communism itself is a very revolutionary, forward-looking um, aspiration. Uh, that's what they wrote in the mid-19th century. And uh, Alex and Nick are picking that idea up and suggesting that actually, um, as the uh, book cover suggests, we can demand full automation, uh, we can demand universal ba basic income, and we can demand the future uh, indeed, a, a communist future, or as they call it, a post-capitalist future, um, even or especially under the present conditions of the Anthropocene. So, I'm, I'm, as you can see, I'm very keen for him to be present and to, uh, for him to talk a little bit about that uh, when, when he arrives. Um, before my colleagues introduce themselves, just to let you know how we're going to run things, um, this is not a formal academic kind of setting. We have, as I've said, uh, very prominent academics here, but we're going to try and keep it fairly light touch. So I'm going to ask each of the panellists two or three questions, three or four questions in succession as we go along, talking um, a bit about the, uh, what is climate change. I mean, we kind of know that, but where we're at now, um, the kinds of responses and the kinds of politics attached to it. Um, that should take us about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and then uh, there'll be plenty of time 
Uh, there'll be plenty of time for you to then open up the discussion with your interventions or your questions. So without further ado, as they say, Aideen, can you tell us who you are, what you do? Hello, my name is Aideen Foley. I'm a lecturer in environmental geography in Ghent. And my work is mostly looking at climate models and what information do we have, how does it inform how we might move forward. So the science perspective. Hi, I'm Diane Horn and I'm a physical geographer and I work these days mostly on flooding and responses and adaptation to sea level rise. And as you can probably tell by my accent, I am not English, and so I may end up having to field a few questions about what the US elections might mean for the global climate, too. Uh, I'm Nick Cernick. Uh, I'm slightly out of breath because I just ran here, so I apologize. Uh, I'm working at City University at the moment, uh, and I sort of do work about uh, activist politics and broader leftist politics, um, which I'm hoping to talk about tonight. Uh, sorry to be another North American. You're Canadian? Canadian. Okay, I'm a Canadian. The right um, kind of uh, American. <laughs> <laughs> Not for, for the environment, though. Uh, we're actually true, worse yeah. than the Americans. But um, no, I'm, I teach in the politics department here. Perfect. I didn't hear your name. Eric Kaufman. Uh, and, and I focus on uh, national identity nationalism, so I'm going to try and weave that in. I'm also dabbling in political psychology, so I'll talk a bit about that too. Splendid. Okay, so we're going to get uh, stuck in straight away, um, and I'm going to ask A.D. to tell us a little bit about climate science. Um, what do we know? Uh, where are there still uncertainties? How much more uh, can a perfect, uh, can we, sorry, perfect uh, our scientific knowledge of climate change? Okay, so when it comes to climate science, I see some of my undergrad students in the audience, and they will have heard me <clears throat> Speaking about this analogy of the three-legged stool, that when we're thinking about climate change science, we have the theory based on our understanding of processes. We've got models, so putting our theory into a model and seeing what happens. And we've got observations, lots and lots of observations of what's <coughs> happening in the world. And when we think about climate change, the basic science of climate change, the interaction between climate and uh, levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we've got a lot of information on all three legs of that stool. So we've got kind of a solid knowledge base around that. So in terms of the theory of anthropogenic climate change, you can take that way back to the 19th century when scientists first started speculating about that. So really long history. Um, in terms of models, we have... Um, some really excellent models now with a lot of processes in them. They've reproduced the past quite well when we have events that happen, such as the Pinatubo volcanic eruption. That gives us a chance to see if, they, um, if the predictions that the models are making are borne out in observations, and they've met these tests quite well. And in terms of observations, um, these graphs from a Met Office report um, kind of show what's going on in terms of observations, all the different indicators that we could have uh, of climate change, all of the things that you might expect to be going up versus things like snow cover that you would expect to be going down. Um, so there's a lot of kind of direct observations like that that all support the theories of anthropogenic climate change. There's also a lot of indirect observations, which I find quite interesting. So there was a study um, that looked at plants and um, plant responses to climate change and was looking at whether plants are flowering and producing fruit earlier than they used to and found that 
78% of all the leafing, flowering and fruiting records for Europe have advanced between 1971 and 2000. And I think that those kind of records are quite um, useful because it's actually a physical thing that you can kind of um, relate to perhaps in a different way to just the, the abstract measurements on their own. But there's also a lot more to do. Um, there are certain areas of more advanced science where we're still not entirely, um, not entirely sure where there is uncertainty. Uh, hurricanes are a good example of this, where we know that theoretically there should be an impact between uh, an impact of climate change on hurricanes, but we're not quite sure yet how that's going to manifest. Um, but we can make a distinction between those more advanced. Um, parts of the science that are still under study versus the basic concept of anthropogenic climate change which is pretty much settled and the 97% consensus figure is something that um, a lot of you probably heard of uh, and that's um, there's been papers that have looked at the consensus between climate scientists and have found that 97% are in support of anthropogenic climate change. So then the kind of last part of this question was, you know, how much more can we perfect things? Do we need to perfect things? And there's certainly always space to improve our knowledge by getting more observations and improving the data and improving the models. But at the same time, um, it's kind of open for debate whether that's really necessary in order to take steps forward to uh, respond to climate change. And certainly if you were applying the precautionary principle, you wouldn't need to have this perfect state of knowledge about everything in order to proceed with um, some sensible options for preventing the consequences. Um, so we can take it forward and we should definitely seek to understand the impacts more because that's going to help inform how we adapt and respond to them. But lack of full certainty about everything certainly shouldn't be a barrier to acting at all. Mm -hmm. Great. I, in the blurb for this event, I nicked uh, David Kilcullen's phrase that we live now in a planet uh, that is, let me get it right, that is complex, as you've just uh, begun to describe, but it's also crowded and coastal, uh, he says. So I want to um, bring out those two aspects, um, starting with the coastal, Diane. You know lots about that. Um, and climate change has been associated to sea level rises. Um, what, how bad is it going to be, is the first question, and is there anything we can do about it? I'm just going to switch and show a couple of other slides. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you look at that many. So just to start with a little bit of the science, Sea level rise is something that we cannot do anything about. Sea level is rising and it's going to continue to rise no matter what we do. Basically, sea level was quite a bit lower at the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago. The ice melted, it melted rapidly and then slowed down, but sea level is still rising as part of a response to the recovery from the last ice age. In geological terms, 10,000 years is very short. So even if there were no humans on the planet, even if there was no human activity, sea level is going to keep rising as part of the recovery from the last ice age. 
Obviously, there is an impact of human activity, particularly in terms of increasing atmospheric temperatures, which then has an effect on ocean temperatures. And what you see here is a graph from the most recent IPCC report. And what it shows you is, going back to about 1700, data before we were measuring sea level, working it out from various paleo measurements, from ice cores, from pollen records, and things like that, then into the area where we have tide gauges, and then where the lines start coming together. We, from about 1993, we have satellite measurements of sea level rise, and then the stuff on the right side of the dotted line I put in is the predictions of the climate models. So even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, even if global temperatures stopped increasing today, even if all humans were wiped off the planet today, the increases in global temperature that have already taken place are going to continue to make sea level rise for centuries. Basically, the physics is quite simple. The nature of the water molecule is such that as the water temperature increases, the water molecule expands. So simply because the water temperature is higher, the sea level is rising, and that accounts for about 75% of the sea level rise that we see. And by the end of the century, it could be as much as 30 centimeters just due to the increases in the water. By the end of the next century, maybe as much as 80 centimeters. And it's going to keep going because it takes centuries for the heat to penetrate to the deep ocean. So in terms of what we can actually do to stop sea level rise, the answer is nothing. In some ways, that should make it easier. If you're dealing with climate deniers or climate skeptics, it actually doesn't matter if they believe in climate change, unless they say they don't believe that the Earth has ever had ice ages. We still are going to see sea level rise. As Alex said, the big problem, of course, is that the population is increasing at the coast as well, too. And this is, again, just a sort of estimation of the relative populations that are going to be affected by sea level rise if we go to, a, if we hold the increases to 2 degrees C. Right now, 27% of the world population lives in the coastal area. Um, that's about 1.9 billion people. By 2050, we expect that to be about 2.4 billion. 19 of the 22 megacities of more than 10 million that are expected by the middle of this century are in the coastal zone. If we keep the climate increase, temperature increase to two degrees Celsius, then about 130 million people more will be affected. If we don't keep it, if it goes up to four degrees, we're looking at something like 470 to 760 more million people that are going to be affected. So in the long term, our responses to sea level rise are either going to be to protect areas if we can, to retreat from areas if we have to, and otherwise to find a way to live with it. Okay. And we're going to return to one of those um, emerging megacities, which is our own uh, city, London, and, and its flood defences, in a minute. But um, I want to move a bit from sea to land, although um, migrants and refugees in particular, of course, take to sea. Um, and, and ask Nick, what, what are the possible migratory effects of, of, of climate change? Is there such thing as climate refugees? What, what might be the, the political impact of that, insofar as it exists? 
Yeah, so I'm quite interested in sort of the political effects of climate change. Uh, and I think migration is one that uh, is probably the biggest sort of political effect of climate change. Um, so we've just heard, you know, the 1.9 billion people living in coastal areas that are likely to be highly affected uh, by climate change. Uh, now, I think there's a sort of intersection with um, a sort of economic process. So in classic sort of Marxist terms, there's this idea called surplus populations. Uh, now, surplus populations are a group of people within our economic system who are basically sort of tossed aside. So they're not even exploited by capitalism. They don't have a job. They're not within a wage relationship within capitalism. This is a group of people that is basically left to fend for themselves. Uh, now, we give one major example of this. Uh, we can look at slums around the world. So estimates are that over a billion people live in slums currently. Largely, these are people working in informal labor markets, struggling to survive every day, doing sort of petty commodity production uh, in order to make a living and uh, continue existing. Now the issue is I think that sort of process, that economic process of excluding certain groups of people from our economic system is going to be matched up by the sort of effects of climate change. And I think we're gonna have a sort of double exclusion here of people who are excluded from being able to make a living within capitalism, uh, but also being excluded from uh, any sort of safety net from the effects of climate change. And that sort of leads to the, the potential for mass migration. Uh, and I think what you're likely to see is a uh, a shift not only from these sort of coastal cities inwards, uh, but also a shift from rural areas to urban areas uh, as more and more areas become unable to keep people surviving off of the land. Uh, so say, for instance, if you have a massive drought that lasts a year, a couple of years, a decade, uh, you're no longer able to feed yourself off of the land. You have to move into a city in order to survive. Uh, so the major issue here is how does the world deal with this? And I think we can see sort of a premonition of this in the Syrian crisis right now. Uh, now, there's been some suggestions that actually Syria is partly caused by climate change. Uh, so the idea being that a possible drought has pushed people into Syrian cities, uh, and this has exacerbated tensions within Syria and led to the war that has caused people to migrate. Uh, now, I think the best evidence suggests this isn't actually the case in Syria, but that sort of consequence is quite likely to happen in the future. Uh, and we see how Europe has dealt with migration. Uh, the answer has been to close up borders. So we've got thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean uh, every single year. I believe last year is like 15,000 or something like that. A huge amount of people being killed as Europe closes up its borders. And I think this problem is only likely to get worse in the future. Uh, so we really need to be thinking about well, how do we frame migration in a more humane way? How do we get people to understand that uh, this is an absolute necessity to respond to in a humane way? And I think it's one of the major problems we need to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to come back to London um, since we're here and, and floods and flood defences. I mean, are we ready, um, Diane? Uh, only if we're lucky. Again, I'm just going to show a few pictures. <laughs> I started with this one. This is New Orleans after Katrina, just to show that London is potentially turning itself into a New Orleans when we don't have to. So this is the properties in London at risk of flooding, the number of people, the areas that are at risk of flooding, sea levels predicted to increase. Predicted sea level rise in London is higher than anywhere else in the country, partly because the whole of the southeast is sinking and partly because London itself is sinking. It's settled about 20 centimeters since St. Paul's was built. 
and also all of the changes that we've made to the Thames have basically increased the tidal range and made it so that the water can get up the river faster. London itself is at risk of every single type of flood there could be. Tidal flooding, storm surge flooding, river flooding from the Thames and the 12 tributaries that go into the Thames, heavy um, rainfall, groundwater flooding, overland flooding from sewers and rivers. And again, there is no climate scenario under which this gets better. The organization that is probably most at risk from a relatively small increase, a relatively small flood is London Underground. If the water gets in at one of the stations by the river, there's no gates to stop it. It's just going to roll downhill until it hits the lowest position. And they've estimated that something like 70 stations in central London could be knocked out for up to a year if major storm surge flooding occurred in London and got into the tube. Again, anyone who's tried to get around on a strike day knows that if that many stations were closed, that we would not, London would sort of grind to a halt. And a study that the Environment Agency did a few years ago, they did a public perception study. They asked Londoners what they would do if they heard that the Thames was going to flood. And over 60% of the respondents said that they would go into the tube. Now, I don't know if this is a sort of folk memory of the bombing in World War II, but if you take home nothing else from today's session, if they tell you Central London is going to flood, walk home. Don't take the tube and don't, even six inches of water is enough to float a car. And I think I have one more slide here because we all know that last year, in sorry, 2014, we had massive floods. The Thames Barrier was closed an unprecedented 50 times between January and March. They didn't think that was going to happen until 2035. And by basically what they've said is that with 20, 50 closures in a year, they would have to stop closing the barrier to protect against river flooding so that the machinery doesn't work, wear out. Despite that, the official position is that we don't need to even start thinking about a replacement for the Thames Barrier until 2050. And we don't need to do anything until the latter part of the century. And we actually don't have any plan for what the replacement for the Thames Barrier might be. Now, it's probably true that we aren't going to have to worry about major floods unless we're very unlucky. But the average length of time it takes to build and design plan, build, and design a major storm surge barrier is 27 years. So I think really what's happened is it's been kicked into touch. It's given the government or successive governments an excuse not to do anything. And of course, no politician wants to spend a lot of money on something that's not going to happen while they're in power. But if they hadn't done that in the 1970s when they built the Thames Barrier, London would have been underwater for two months in 2014. Mm-hmm. So yours and, and Nick's recent intervention, just intervention just now, um, makes me think about how the the, the, connect, the the differentiation between nature and society, nature and culture, seems to have disappeared. That's the uh, the premise, I think, of the Anthropocene that you know there is no more nature. Um, but by the same token, you're both talking about uh, mediations, political mediations, uh, social uh, cultural mediations. Um, the, the fact that the political cycle, political time, is not in tune with 
with the long term, and that's been one of the main claims of environmental politics, that you know, we've got to think about the long term and about different kinds of cycles. Um, so this is a long way of bringing Eric in, because I think one of the, one of the uh, mediations surely is the nation and the nation state and nationalism and indeed cultural identity. So I wondered, Eric, if you can tell us a little bit about the role of nationalism, which is your area of specialism, in uh, either blocking or uh, somehow mitigating uh, climate change. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, maybe I'll show some slides as well, because I think that a lot of us would think of nationalism as kind of a, a barrier to the kind of cooperation we need, global cooperation, to tackle climate change. And I think that's true. But I also think that the Green Movement, the environmental movement, also has to ask some tough questions, which may not be comfortable ones for those of us in the room either. And I'll hopefully show you what I mean in just a second here. Um, and I, um, so I'm just drawing on some work by a political marketing firm called Cultural Dynamics, which has presented to about 80 major environmental organizations and really does what's called values mapping, which tries to you know, give people a survey of about 100 questions and map where they are. And they come up with kind of three broad clusters, which they call settlers, prospectors, and pioneers. Now you can go online and you can sort of answer 10 questions and it'll put you in one of these boxes. But the long and the short of it is, uh, the environmental movement I think has done a very good job of preaching to the converted and to people who are very comfortable. I mean, every, probably everyone in this room believes in climate change. Everyone here probably voted Remain. But that's not really where most people are. And really, if the uh, environmental movement is going to move forward, they're going to have to get out of their comfort zone and start talking to some of the groups which are traditionally antagonistic to uh, issues around climate change. Now, if you look at, uh, this is a typical chart that cultural dynamics produces. I uh, love their charts. But anyway, you can see that people who have a very strong green orientation are, are generally in this area. And these are what are called pioneers. They're sort of bohemian, um, ethical, expressive uh, ethical types. Uh, but what's really important is to try and break into these groups. This is a more kind of status-conscious, hedonistic uh, group that's in interested in uh, display. And then this is what's known as the settlers who are interested in stability, tradition, safety. And that's the group, if you can see this question, on balance, EU is a, is a benefit. Uh, you can see this group's very cool on that question. And they would have generally voted uh, leave. Whereas this group down here, which happens to be very green, is also going to be relatively warm and positive to the EU. Um, the point here is, how do you then get a green message, for example, to penetrate into some of these other groups, which are the majority and probably will always be the majority? This idea that we can educate everybody to be down here is, I think, a pipe dream. In order to do that, one of the things, for example, that Greenpeace was able to do in their marketing was to say, okay, well, we have to try, because the way trends move is they tend to go from uh, an innovation here uh, to fashion, something that becomes fashionable by it. So these are fashion leaders, these are innovators. So the kind of bohemian innovators come up with some idea, then gets picked up by these people who want to display, show that they're fashionable. Then it becomes normal, and that's when it reaches this group. So that's the kind of cycle you need for uh, acceptance of climate change as well. And how do you actually achieve that? Interestingly, Greenpeace um, realize that actually I can have to create consumer goods, a kind of eco-consumerism in order to drag these people in so that it would be fashionable to, to 
be green, and then eventually it becomes hopefully a normal thing, in which case it then gets picked up by people who want to adhere to norms. So uh, I'm going to just say something about the nation and nationalism too here, because I think there are some, uh, there actually are connections between um, <coughs> ecological conscious, consciousness and uh, national identity, and they run through themes such as wanting to protect and conserve. In the case of national identity, it's protecting and conserving ways of life, culture, and so on. I'm just going to whiz through here. Um, if you look at the place, if you look at, again, this group, which is very strong on <coughs> green and green intent, but you can also see that people who have a high national pride or believe in national security are above average on green intent. So there is actually, there are points of uh, overlap between those who have more interested in heritage conservation and the green movement. And so, for example, it is, could be an idea for, it's, this is the current way that um, the green movement kind of sells itself. We should reduce climate change to help poor countries and for the good of all mankind. That will work very well for that lower quadrant group that's already converted. But maybe it's necessary to try and tailor a message to those, to the rest, the majority perhaps of the population that has a stronger message in national identity and you have to tailor that message differently. So the message would be reduce climate change to protect our historic national landscape, safeguard our way of life, reduce dependence on foreign resources, etc., etc. Using a different kind of messaging uh, than we've been used to. So that just is a little bit on political marketing uh, and nationalism. Okay. Is it true, Nick, that that last version that Eric's just described uh, fits what you understand as folk politics? And if, if so, I mean, you're, you're diametrically opposed to folk politics. I mean, in your, <laughs> in your Accelerist Manifesto, you know, the Green Movement in, in, in the main is, represents folk politics. So tell us what, what folk politics is and, and why you uh, don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so folk politics is a term that my co-author Alex Williams and I came up with. Largely, what it is, it's a dominant common sense, particularly among sort of activist groups, uh, that says that the response to global sort of problems like climate change, like global capitalism, the response to these is to turn towards some form of immediacy. So sort of included within this is a lot of sort of environmental localism, uh, that thinks that the best way to respond to these problems is to, uh, you know, grow food in your backyard, that sort of thing, uh, or the 100-mile diet, all of this. Um, now, there can be good benefits about that, but our argument is that they're quite limited. They're not going to solve the problem of global climate change uh, entirely, uh, or even significantly. And I think one major reason why is because of the embeddedness of infrastructure in the world. So, we think about how much of our infrastructure is dependent upon and is producing uh, coal and oil, it is based upon extracting coal and oil from the ground, uh, sending it across the rest of the world, using it in our automobiles, using it in our factories, using it to sustain the entire economy. Most of our infrastructure in the world is based upon this stuff and is profitable because we, get, uh, because we use coal and oil. Now, if we want to think about changing climate change and actually stopping climate change, we need to think about how do we get our entire society's dependency on this infrastructure? How do we get away from that? And this is where I think the sort of, the big sort of uh, uh, protests that you see around summits, uh, the big protests that you saw around the Paris, uh, around Paris last year, these things draw attention to the issue of climate change, but I don't think they actually stop, you know, the embeddedness of more and more 
uh, oil and coal dependent infrastructure into the world. So I think a sort of non-folk political way of trying to stop climate change is something more like uh, intervening in the Keystone uh, XL pipeline in Canada. It's intervening in uh, sort of fracking projects here in the UK. All of these sort of projects where people are trying to build infrastructure that is going to continue to rely upon coal and oil and other things, um, intervening in that to stop that from going ahead. Because if those sorts of projects go ahead, we've embedded 20, 30 years more uh, of climate change into the system. So I think that's a better way to focus our, our, our energy and our limited resources into stopping those sorts of projects than necessarily to uh, going protesting in Paris and putting your shoes on the ground in Paris, uh, which is one of the protests there. Um, but yeah, my suggestion. Okay, and we're going to come back and press you a little bit, but I want to bring Aideen in with um, the idea of geoengineering. Um, because there is, as there often is to political problems, uh, a technical solution. Um, in your uh, assessment, can we engineer ourselves out of climate change? Uh, how feasible are these options? Uh, and should we be optimistic about their, their realisability? Okay, so this kind of links back to what you've all been saying, but it will link back at the very end. So there's a lot of ways in which we could... Uh, apply technical solutions to, to solving some of the problems of climate change. Um, and I've got a graph actually, which would <coughs> So when we're considering geoengineering, there's kind of three things you want to think about, which is how effective is it going to be, how um, affordable is it going to be, and how safe is it going to be. And this was a graph produced by the Royal Society. They basically looked at a whole load of different geoengineering approaches. And you can kind of categorize geoengineering approaches into the ones that try to manage the solar radiation that is coming <coughs> to the Earth and the ones that actually try to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They looked at a whole range across both. And really what you see is that there's no winner on all three counts. You don't have a solution which is affordable, highly affordable, highly effective, and really safe. Um, so if we look at some of the kind of front runners in terms of affordability, you see you've got afforestation, planting more trees, which is affordable, it's safe, but it's not terribly effective. Uh, and at the other, at the top of that graph, we've got stratospheric aerosols, which are um, affordable, um, depending on what estimates you look at for the cost, uh, which are more effective but have a lot of safety issues associated with them. So that specific type of geoengineering, what it's suggesting is that you put stratospheric, air, stratospheric, part, stratospheric aerosol particles into the atmosphere which increase reflectivity and basically bounce more solar radiation away from the earth. So you end up with a situation where the climate is cooler but you're not solving the issue of having more carbon dioxide in the system. So it's not going to solve everything and because of that you've got issues with safety where it's not really solving other problems. So we do have these um, technical solutions that you could apply and some of them, you know, if you're willing to kind of get past the ethical and the safety issues, sure, yeah, you could apply them. Um, personally, I think that the 
issues around who would control these solutions, who would be in charge of deciding, like who would have their hand on the thermostat and be deciding what temperature the world should be, is kind of um, not something that I would trust most of our leaders with, really. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's something that I would be quite uncomfortable with. However, there has been some a study that showed that if you give people information about geoengineering, they actually have more of a perception of the risks of climate change versus people who didn't receive that same information about geoengineering. And the suggestion is that by giving people a solution which is more in line with their worldview, by giving them a solution which is about human ingenuity and man will save us all and we don't have to change our way of living so much, that people will engage more with the problem. So even if we don't do it, even if it would be um, on a lot of counts a bad idea to do, um, it, there could be uh, a role for the discussion, there could be reasons to have the discussion to kind of bring the issue of climate change to the attention of people who otherwise wouldn't want to engage with it. So from that point of view, I think it's something we should be talking about, but um, not something that I'd like to see considered seriously as the solution. Okay, so only the Anthropos, only the humans can solve the Anthropocene, uh, to coin, coin a, a phrase. But um, I'm going to um, talk about politics in a minute, um, in, a, in a grander sense, but let's get, we don't shy away from topicality. Um, so let me go to Diane and say, Brexit. <laughs> what are the implications? I mean, <laughs> there's, all, there's a whole list, but for, uh, for climate change, and particularly for the kinds of um, effects that London might be facing or is facing in, in, in the near future, uh, what, what has been the effect of, of Brexit for the UK environment in particular, let's say? And if you want, you can go across the uh, Atlantic and think of, you know, can we trump uh, proof, I think is your phrase, yeah. <laughs> the, the environment. Um, t tell us about you know, the populist turn and, and the rejection of this kind of authority that you were referring to and, and the, 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 the absence of trust uh, in leadership, current uh, politicians, and how that impacts uh, in the environment. Okay, I think the short answer is that we have absolutely no idea how, it, how it's going to affect the environment because we don't know who is actually going to be the government in a relatively short time. But all of the indications are that unless there's a snap election and the Tories go completely, that the people who are more likely to be running the country are going to be more likely to be climate skeptics than people who are concerned about the climate. And again, I can't show you any data about this because we don't have it. But what I can show you is um, the sorts of things that the, um, the people who are currently in charge of the country have said that what Brexit may do is to get rid of all the red tape from Europe. And it's certainly true that about 70% of the environmental regulation is prompted by Europe, either in the form of directives or indirect legislation. And the, again, I was listening to a radio program, Radio 4, this afternoon about environmental and European law. 
and there are sort of two types of law that affects the environment here. There are things which are directly regulated by the EU or by Europe, in, in which case the UK could, draw out of, could drop out of those. There are then a lot of other ones that follow from European directives which had to be implemented by UK regulation and therefore the, they could keep that, those laws in place. They would not necessarily have to repeal them and again how easy it would be to repeal them we're not entirely sure. This, of course, I think gives us a little bit of an idea of the threat here. We don't know who is going to be the next prime minister, but we do know the track record of the people that seem to be in the running at the moment. And although it's sort of hard to know what Boris believes on any particular day. He has been known to say things like, there's snow in my back garden, how can global warming be happening? So I think I'll stop there and we can come back to Trump in a bit, if that's okay. Okay, well, I'll let you maybe come right at the end, because we're going to start uh, closing this part of the discussion um, with a full political throttle, and I'm going to ask each of the speakers different aspects of pretty much the, the same question, namely what is to be done, if, if anything. Um, but Eric, can you uh, perhaps in line um, with what you were telling us earlier, and I think reflecting a bit of what Aideen was, Aideen was saying uh, about uh, perceptions and the role of um, you know, publicity and communication, I mean, if, if, what would you advise proponents of green policies um, to do if they want to increase the support for mitigation policies? Well, I think one of the things we see is that a lot of the population think that green is a lifestyle and an identity that is attached to a particular small part of the population, so that it's a choice made by people who are into green things. Um, and I think the trick really is how do you then get out of that ghetto, really? And, and so I'm suggesting you have to start building in political marketing terms, building an identity that is not oppositional, so that you can be green and you can be an English nationalist. That shouldn't be an opposition. Uh, and it may not go down well here, but you sh you've got to be able to be conservative and green as well. So you've got to have, symbolically, a way of being identifying with a green movement, with the cause, and still having your political identity. Zach Goldsmith, basically. Well, yeah, but, but just, yeah, so I'm kind of saying, in a way, you, you can still have your message for your core constituency, which believes in, you know, ethical universalism, but you also need a different message crafted to both the people who are interested in hedonism and display and people who are interested in national identity. So I, that's where I'm sort of trying to say, in a way, the Green Movement has not necessarily been good at breaking out of its comfort zone and trying to reach out to those constituencies. So I think that's, that's certainly necessary to build momentum uh, for legislation. Yeah. Okay. And Aideen, what, what about... Um climate scientists themselves, educators like yourselves and I guess ourselves, um, what role can we play in changing patterns, persuading, is, is, there, is there a communication angle to uh, the politics of climate change? I mean, the issue is that exactly as we've been discussing, you have to find ways of linking the message to the view that people have. There's been increasingly research done on applying cultural theory to, to perceptions of climate change and trying to work out why is it that people will just selectively dismiss the bits of science that they don't like, that don't agree with, um, with the worldview that they've got. 
And um, there's this theory of identity preservation cognition that you will just filter out the bits that don't support the way you want to live, the way that you view the world, and will pick up the bits that do support it. And I think as well, with um, so much ease of publishing opinions on the internet, you will find something to support whatever your view of things is, whether it's, you know, think tanks producing reports or the angry commenter on your on Guardian environmental, environmental articles, you will find something to support your viewpoint if you don't want to believe the science. So I think it is about trying to find ways of um, aligning the the message that you know this is happening, we need to do something, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that your entire worldview is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's bad, uh, and that's a whole sort of um, social science, communication, psychology angle, which is really overlooked in the way that the IPCC currently um, deals with you know bringing together the knowledge on climate change, and it's something that is being increasingly called for. That this is something that we need to consider in addition to the science and the quantitative facts of what's happening, we need to consider the more um, qualitative nature of how people perceive this information and how their views and um, thoughts about the world is going to impact that in order to make sure that we are delivering it. It's something we are not there yet on, but increasingly aware of the issue. Mm. And Nick, you were talking earlier about the, the sort of fracking and tar sands of Alberta. Um, I mean, I got that, that you were advocating a sort of politics of infrastructural sabotage, uh, but two related questions. I mean, one is beyond the, the incidental, uh, and that may have a, a big impact occasionally, um, what are the broader political coalitions that might sustain that, uh, what they look like? I mean, you're really talking about quite radical action. Um, and linked to that, is there a... a, a I, I read in, in yours and Alex's book the possibility of if you like, retooling um, the existing infrastructure for a more democratic, post-capitalist world. So can you tell us a little bit about who's going to do it and, and what, what, how might we re, um, recharge the existing massive infrastructure that the capital provides? Yeah, um, so I'll make one quick point about Brexit as well. One effect we already know from Brexit, uh, right now the UK needs about £100 billion worth of new infrastructural investment for energy. Uh, and already investors are pulling out because of uncertainty about the UK's economy. Uh, a lot of this is renewable energy, but now suddenly Britain has to worry about where it's going to get the investment for renewable energy. This is already being noted as an effect of Brexit. It's already happening. Um, now to sort of pick up on things that have already been suggested, how do we actually build a coalition uh, of people who can act against climate change? Because we know the science, we know the effects to a very high degree, uh, we know it's going to be an issue, we know it's going to be a problem. The challenge is getting people to act. Uh, and part of this has to do with different groups have different material interests. And I want to say that most of the world, uh, one of the biggest hindrances to getting action on climate change is the fact that we need economic growth. We're in a world where if we want jobs for people, if you want an income for people, you have to have economic growth. Now economic growth right now demands greater and greater uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So you have leftist movements, labor movements, uh, labor parties, trade unions, who should all be on board with green policies, but they also see it's going to hurt their constituencies. It's going to hurt workers to draw back on, on uh, economic growth. It's going to cut jobs for them. 
So this is one of the biggest hindrances uh, between the green movement and you know, more traditional sort of political movements. Now, I think the answer here is to switch to a different frame. I think the answer is to get away from our dependency upon a job as a source of income. Now, this means something like what's called a universal basic income. Uh, so universal basic income, if you haven't heard of it, is basically the state providing for everybody a minimal amount of money so that you can survive no matter what. So you don't need a job to survive. That means we don't need economic growth for people to, to survive. And suddenly we can start thinking about, well, how do we have uh, either steady state growth, no growth, or some sort of coordinated growth, and not the sort of untrammeled growth that goes on right now. Uh, I think we need to really think about how are we guiding growth uh, and the dependencies that we have on it, and how do we get away from those dependencies uh, if we want to bring together different groups. Because, you know, the labor movement, the trade unions, fully on board with the environmental movement, but not if it hurts the workers. So we have to be thinking about how do we bring material interest in line with each other? Uh, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. So I'm going to leave the last question for Diane before we open up, because, you know, the, whatever happens in Europe, the United States is, is really multiple Europes in all kinds of ways. Um, and one of the presidential nominees we expect is going to be one Donald Trump. Um, what, are, what are the implications of a President Trump, let's say, for uh, climate change? Okay, well, first of all, I have to say, I do not believe there will be a President Trump. I do not believe that a country that voted twice for Obama with significant majorities is actually going to vote for Donald Trump. I think that he has antagonized such large proportions of the population uh, that I don't think any uh, Latinos are likely to vote for him, or African Americans, or probably women, certainly not Muslims, and um, probably not environmentalists either. And if you heard some of his tweets from Scotland, uh, it's actually not easy to know what his position is. His view on the climate, I think, changes more rapidly than the climate does. But there's a couple of his tweets. One of them, in fact, is quite rude, I'm afraid, that he said. And he has gone on record saying that he would cancel the Paris Agreement. Of course, the answer is that he cannot do that. Obviously, he can't make the other 170 nations change. He cannot, one of the factors of the checks and balances in the US, obviously it can lead to complete congressional roadblock as we've seen, but it also means that a president cannot unilaterally take a decision. So he's also said he would close down the Environmental Protection Agency. Again, he can't do that. Um, if he had the control of both houses of Congress, he could cut the funding significantly. There are things a president can do by executive order. One of the things that Obama has done to get around Congress is that they've had greenhouse gases declared as a pollutant, and therefore they can be regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Again, a new president could potentially try to, to rescind that executive order, and they could certainly cut the budget for the Environmental Protection Agency. Globally, short of of course, having a finger on the nuclear button. I think the main impact a climate-denying U.S. president would have is that they could slow down what the U.S. did. And if they had control of both houses of Congress, they could probably begin to try to back out. But I looked this up in the discussions of how long it would take to get out of Europe. Actually, the, um, the United States, if they wanted to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, it would require them to wait three years, and then they would have to give a year's notice, which would actually take it beyond the next election. 
Splendid. So that leaves us, I hope, plenty of time, a good half hour um, to hear your thoughts on what you've heard um, or on the politics of climate change. Can I please ask you to be as concise and brief as possible? If you do have a question, and it doesn't have to be a question, uh, do direct it to one of the panellists so that we don't get four uh, answers, <laughs> interesting as that might be. And I'm going to try, if the panellists are uh, okay with this, try and collect some um, some questions. Um, just to remind you, this is this being recorded. Um, <laughs> if you have a reason to identify yourself, please do so. Tell us who you are and where you, you know, what, 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 why you're here, so to speak. But um, the main thing is, is is to hear from from your view. So um, just catch my eye, and I'll try and. Yes. Um, for Nick, um, you talked about disrupting the infrastructure building for extraction of fossil fuel industries. How effective do you think that could be, given the power of large um, multinational corporations like Shell or BP? You know, if you've got a group of activists chaining themselves to the infrastructure, how you know realistically how far can they get apart from you know raising awareness? Yeah, why not? While people are mulling, <laughs> sure, sure. please. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's difficult. It's not easy. Uh, I think the real issue here is is creating more and more costs for these companies to try and get their their plans set out. Um, it's not going to work every time, but we have seen successes in fighting against fracking um, and various other oil pipelines. Um, there are successes, and I think that. Part of, my, part of my argument here, and it's quite contentious, I realize that, is that a lot of time, energy, and resources goes into putting up these big protests around the Paris, uh, Paris uh, event. And I think a lot of that could be better spent focusing on sort of disrupting these infrastructure plans. I think in a, in a sort of long-term sense, if those things are implemented, that's just that's 20 or 30 years that's going to be gone that we have to fight back. Uh, if we can block it from the start, I think that's a much better use of our time and our energy. Um, so I sort of imagine, you know, what would happen if we were to use all the, the resources that go into big protests uh, to be more targeted interventions. Um, it's not the answer to everything, unfortunately, but it seems to me more useful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure um, you're probably aware of some of the work that the Joint Foundry Foundation has been doing over the last few years on climate disadvantage and the maps of people with vulnerability to climate risk. And it struck me, looking at the... Um, the outcome of the referendum, that actually you could do quite an interesting correlation, I suspect, between climate disadvantage and, and, and boat leave as well, particularly in places like the east of England, which are you know, UKIP strongholds. And if you look at someone like Boston in Lincolnshire, you know, that's been heavily affected by flooding, not so much reported, but, but still those places are very, very vulnerable in the east of England. And a lot of those communities in the northwest and so on as well are places that have voted heavily leave. And I wonder whether there's, we've talked. Well, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that kind of disconnect between people who are very clearly at risk and already experiencing the impacts of that threat in the UK, and perhaps a lack of connection with um, environmental, you know, with environmental politics, and whether adaptation rather than mitigation is part of a way of changing a frame and getting, you know, making some of those connections that we heard Eric talking about, for example. Mm. Excellent. I, I can't uh, resist saying that I saw in social media, maybe others did, a, a map of the UK superimposing uh, the areas of intense uh, Brexit uh, support and the areas that suffered intense mad cow disease um, a few years back. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's scientific or not. But, um, yes. 
Oh, hi. Um, is it possible for next time to get like um, a NASA um, pictures of the clouds above the planet so we could see like where they are going towards to? And also I have a question for Nick. Do you think it will affect England on being like the richest, one of the richest countries if we pull out of Brexit? Mm -hmm. Will it be downgraded immediately or will it happen gradually? I don't know if everybody heard that, uh, but a question about clouds, I think, yeah, and a question yes. about uh, Brexit and the immediate... In England. England is in yeah, United Kingdom is listed as one of the richest countries. Do you think Brexit will affect us? Okay. <laughs> right. Will they try to pull us down? Are there other uh, questions for this round? Yeah. Um, I think it's a question for Nick. Um, there's an idea that environmentalists are secretly trying to get socialism in through the back door. So, I mean, I think that's an additional problem, political problem, um, in terms of the electorate or, or conservative voters who are mistrustful of environmentalists. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we've got a question about the mapping of the politics. Can I... I think all of you might have something to say, uh, although Nick's going to field one of the questions, so perhaps if we start with Aideen and then... Um, Diane and Eric, on, on this, this first question. This was about the mapping between flood risk and right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky one because there's some evidence to suggest that when you are exposed to extreme flooding, it gives you more of a perception of your risk. It enhances your perception of your risk. And yet there's also a lot of anecdotal evidence that people don't really understand the notion of return periods and don't really understand the notion of risk and think that if they've been flooded, it's not going to happen again or it's not going to happen for another 50 years. So I think there's no kind of one explanation for, for why people have these... Um, why people act in a way that isn't really in their interests, I guess. Um, I mean, I think that as, as the impacts of climate change, as extremes become more frequent, we may get to see more of this phenomenon of people perceiving the risks more because of their personal experience, but at the same time, there's work to do on explaining, you know, that just because this has happened it's going to happen again. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's something we just have to to educate on, I guess. But Diane, you probably... Question for Diane. Okay. No, no, you, sorry, oh, Diane, Diane. Okay, I mean, first of all, I think that's a great idea for a grant proposal, actually. <laughs> if somebody hasn't already done it. Um, I know that the um, <coughs> Jesse Rentree Foundation has done some work on locations of climate-deprived <coughs> communities in the UK, and. I think that it is. It would be an interesting just thing to see if those communities are the same. What's behind it? And uh, as Aideen said, that people don't necessarily think that they're at risk. And of course, one of the things that we start to see as as flood maps get better is that places that people didn't think were at risk are. We would be probably better off saying instead of saying you've got a one in hundred year chance of flooding, when people think okay nothing's going to happen if flooded last year, we've got 100 years before we're safe. To say something like, you know, you've got an 80% chance of your property being flooded in the t period of your 25-year mortgage, or something like that, something putting it into the perspective that people can relate to. 
But the reality is, and again, this was the mayor of a town called Valmire, Illinois, on the Mississippi, where it was a small town, about 500 people. After the Mississippi floods, when 90% of the town flooded, they actually bought land higher up on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi and moved the entire town. It's one of the few instances we have. A lot of big cities, we don't know how they're going to cope with it, but they're not going to have any choice but to move. But as the mayor said, it's a lot easier to persuade people that they're in danger when they're standing knee-deep in water. And so the, the usual sort of response to this is never waste a good crisis. Have policy ready to go, and if there's a flood, immediately jump in there and capture the politician's attention before it moves on to something else. Eric, from the sort of political demography end of things, you got any well, reflections on this? Yeah, I mean, not, I wasn't as much going to go into that either. I'm happy to talk about population, but I'm just just to follow up on this question, I mean, I do think that the, the messaging and the marketing uh, does, as I said, need to make connections to uh, voters outside that metropolitan kind of liberal frame. And one of the ways of doing that is, is connecting to local issues. And if you look at organizations like the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, National Trust, and so on, they have most of their membership is actually conservative, and those what they're concerned about not changing the local landscape, preserving native plants, all of those sorts of things. I think if you can tie that message into a message about climate change, then you're going to have more success than trying to sell them on a third world's going to going to flood and it's going to be all these climate refugees. Yeah, I mean I know that's an issue, but I think that if you really want to change minds, you've got to get to people. Uh, in their local environment and, and what, what's meaningful to them. Or the other route is to try and make it fashionable. I mean, if you think of the shopping bags that are, that are now in use, and that, those have now been adopted because uh, they're a normal thing to do, so then the conservative people will adopt them. So I think you, but again, thinking creatively about messaging, I think is pretty critical. So Nick, the uh, <laughs> socialism through the, the green door kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, particularly the United States is seen as like um, some world government trying to impose socialism through global warming conspiracies. Um, now this maybe pushes back a little bit against what Eric's been arguing, but I don't think it's crucial that we convince everybody. I don't even think you have to cr convince the majority of the population. So let's look at every sort of major advance in human history, whether it be fighting for democracy, fighting for civil rights, fighting for the end of slavery, fighting for the women's right to vote. You never had to convince the majority of the population that it was the right thing to do. Instead, you had to change the political structures. You had to change the policies to implement it. And there's a sort of great moment where Hillary Clinton, of all people, and I'm not a fan, but Hillary Clinton met up with the Black Lives Matter movement. And she asked them, so what do you want? And they talk about, well, we want to change people's hearts and minds, and we want to, we want to get them to believe in our struggle. And she's like, no, the thing you do is you don't change people's hearts and minds. You change the policies and have the people adapt to the policies. And I think there's maybe a bit too much em uh, emphasis on trying to convince everybody of the necessity of changing, rather than trying to actually just get these policies enacted and um, forcing people to adapt to the policies. <coughs> That's not to say that you don't want to bring people along as well, but I think there's maybe an overemphasis on that part. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a couple of questions, then we'll come back to you. Yeah. Um, you really, you talked about investment a little bit here, mm -hmm. and also talks about reframing. Um, and from the space that I'm in, it seems like the framing of, of climate change and climate policy tends to always be as cost. Talk about carbon cost, carbon capture, everything, carbon tax. It's very much framed in a, in a cost space. Um, and I work with pension schemes and, and investment. Um, 
When I was at an investment conference earlier in the year, they were talking about climate change, and it was very much framed as an investment opportunity. Um, and you've even got sort of the, the papers there. The, so there's a paper out from um, the Sustainable in Oxford looking at the impacts of investing in a sustainable, sustainable and responsible investment that's showing a positive economic impact from that kind of investment. So it's nothing to do with climate change over here. That's a residual sort of positive for the world or whatever. But actually, it makes economic sense to, to invest in that way. So is there any sort of economic aspects or investment or finance aspect to to you know, solving climate change. Okay, is that directed at all? It's generally directed. Well, it's not directly talks about investment, but okay. it's, about uh, it's a general comment. In other, that's that's fine. Maybe we can pick that up. Um, is there anybody else that hasn't yet had an opportunity? Yes. My question is to the lady on the, my left, whose name I still don't know. Bd. Did you arrive late or? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were all we, we all introduced ourselves. Yeah. We all introduced ourselves. I, AD, yes. AD, yeah, okay. Well, it's mostly to her, but it's. I just want the panel generally to think about what she talked about geoengineering. Now, the issue is not geoengineering itself, but if you think of what Nick Stern said in 2006 in his report, he said that we should start to reduce the total carbon emissions by one to three percent starting right now and that's a very doable thing. But in 10 years, it's going to get much harder. And the 10 years has now come. So it has got much harder. And recently, Nick Stern said, I'm sorry that I didn't make it more serious than in my original report than, than, than what it really is. It's much worse than I said. So, so that's the situation we are now in. But on the other hand, we have governments of the world uh, very uh, excited about Paris Agreement and saying we will get there. They were very emotional. Mm. So there is no kind of any acknowledgement that the matter is very serious at, at that official level. And we are still talking about the Paris commitments and maybe we will get to two degrees. Mm -hmm. Now you have then uh, 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 someone like uh, uh, the uh, the, the American, uh, the former head of Dollar Space Research Center, uh, what's his name? Um, Hansen. Hansen, James Hansen, saying that it's 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 uh, two two degrees isn't enough. That we have to get to one and a half at the very least, and we have, and so so there's some evidence that things are much more serious than the governments are saying. Mm -hmm. So that is that why we are now when you think about geoengineering. How does the academic community think about how this matter is going to be managed? Mm -hmm. When are the triggers for, uh, for geoengineering? Is there enough work being done in geoengineering? And I don't see any work being done at all. In fact, there are some few guys doing a little bit here and there, very minor bits. But the kind of global geoengineering needs major research projects okay. involving... So, so I, I'm really saying, when is the academic community going to seriously look at this transition? Are you admitting that transition is necessary? And if so, are you going to look at it? Okay, well, I'll let Aideen be the spokeswoman <laughs> for, for the academic community in just a minute. But I think the first question was maybe all of you have something to contribute, uh, which was about, if I understood rightly, the, the framing in terms of costs, yeah, of exactly cost benefit just, analysis. Yeah, and, as in the financial benefits from investments yeah. that are environmentally responsible. 
and that itself being an obstacle. It goes to your point. You yeah. don't need to convince every wider the population. You just need to convince the people that are making, you know, the investment decisions, be they government or private sector. I think I can probably start with that. Um, I've done a lot of work with the insurance industry, and they, the insurance industry, and particularly the reinsurance industry, is taking climate change much more seriously than any natural, national government, because they are already paying out. And places, companies like Munich Re and Swiss Re are putting a lot of money into research from this point of view, but they are also pressuring national governments. And in the UK, a lot of what's happened has in this country been driven by the insurance industry rather than by the, the government, particularly in recent years. And I think we've seen that, you know, because obviously we've been talking about the UK and the US, but there are a lot of other countries <coughs> in Australia that are coming up with elections that are going to be critical in terms of the climate response. The other sort of... Um, other aspect where you can put a positive, this is going to, in a way that you can improve the economy without increasing emissions and things like that, is I've just been working on a project with a company called Arup, an engineering consultancy. And it's every year they do a global research challenge. And this one was on city sea level rise and flooding. And what we've done is we've put together guidance so that people in every Arab office around the world are going to be able to advise cities at risk of sea level rise and flooding and what they might do. And a lot of those cities probably are not going to have much choice except to think about how they're going to retreat. So there are positive industries, as you said, that can come out of this that people aren't thinking creatively. And sometimes the, the policy is what drives it. I mean, things like with easier wins like the catalytic converters. California passed legislation and this had to happen and the car manufacturers did it. The Montreal Accord where basically CSCs were being phased out. But again, there was an easy option. They were losing their patents anyway and there was something that didn't cost any more and it didn't impact people's lives. But I think you're right that there are things and there are companies and industries. I mean, a lot of the reason that they think the U.S. won't be able to back out, even with a new president, is that the big companies like Apple and Google, Google and places like that, they're responding to their customers. They want green solutions. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a sort of a case to learn from history, which is the implementation of the New Deal within America, which you would sort of think, so New Deal, so a whole set of welfare policies, support for workers and things like this. And you would think that business would be against it. It's going to add more cost to them. And you go back and you actually look at how the New Deal was, was built and the coalition that was built in support of the New Deal. Certain industries were in favor of it. And these were industries that weren't heavily dependent upon labor. Uh, they didn't hire a lot of workers. And they could see the benefits of giving workers a means of consuming goods and helping the economy grow and all sorts of things. So I think, you know, just saying businesses against the environment is, is un-nuanced. We need to be thinking about what sort of industries are actually, could benefit from supporting climate change. And I think the, the insurance industry is the biggest one, uh, but I love the story about Donald Trump and his golf course. I mean, <laughs> things about that. So let's think about like the tourism industry, uh, even the energy industry, the ener energy, energy industry, they want clarity about exactly what is going to go on. They want to know whether or not their investments in uh, new oil and coal-based infrastructure are going to pay off or not. They want some clarity about the path forward. And I think that if governments were to actually be sort of foresighted and give that clarity, uh, there could be a lot of room to even bring the energy industry on board. And that would be a major shift in how uh, the sort of coalition behind uh, the battle against climate change builds up. So I think we need to think in those terms. Mm. Aideen, um, 
the second question around academics or the academic community in the broadest sense of scientific community is it thinking about geoengineering in, in, in a meaningful sense? Well, there's a lot of work on you know, working out the costs and things in a theoretical sense because you have to think about scaling up existing technology. There's, I think it's a, a UN treaty that bans like large-scale experimentation with geoengineering. So you can't really have um, large-scale prototype studies happening. But there is, there is work being done on you know, delivery mechanisms for if you were going to go down the route of putting stratospheric aerosol particles into the atmosphere. How would you um, do that? What would the delivery mechanism need to be? There's a lot of um, work being done on things like that, a lot of work on quantifying estimates of how much things would cost. Um, but then there's a huge amount that is, um, you know, difficult difficult to get a figure on. There's so much that is, um, you know, there's social cost attached to it as well, which is very difficult to quantify. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about what it, where are the points, like what, what are the triggers where we would start thinking about this seriously. I think the fact that some of these methods could be deployed quite quickly and easily, sort of kicks the can a little bit, that you don't necessarily have to um, start planning so far in advance. Like, as Diane was saying, with flood defences, in order to develop something and implement it, you need to be thinking of a long lead time. Whereas some of the mechanisms which are being proposed around stratospheric um, geo particle geoengineering, you know, you've got the aircraft, hook a hose onto it, and you know, you're ready to go pretty much. Um, or you know, balloons, um, weather balloons with hoses attached to them. Like the technology is there, it just needs to be scaled up. And I think maybe that's why um, there isn't such a, a discussion about when would we start kicking this into play, um, because the lead time is maybe a little bit shorter than for a lot of the other action that we would be talking about in terms of both adaptation and mitigation. So that's my take on it. What about the social aspects of geoengineering, the international legal aspects? Yeah, I mean, this was why um, you had this uh, treaty um, around the experimentation with it, because it is kind of worrying that there are some forms of geoengineering that you basically could, if you were a rich person, with um, the inclination, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's nothing to stop you from getting a boat and a ton of iron and dumping it into the ocean to promote more plankton growth and suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Like if you have the money and the inclination, you could do that. It's within reach. Um, so it's, it's for that reason that you know we we can't we can't have that happening. We can't have people just taking matters into their own hands, which was where the motivation for you know putting a stop on it came from. But I think maybe we do need to think about the, the ethical questions, as you say, who would control things? How would it link into the geopolitics as well? Because um, if we're thinking about you know changing the thermostat of the world, like different parts of the world, different countries are going to have different opinions on that. Will there be conflict? How will we manage that? Um, there's all of these discussions that we probably need to start having before we get to the point of having to, to do all of this. 
Okay, can I throw in one last question then, uh, unless there's, there's others, a uh, second bite of the cherry, unless there's somebody else that hasn't... Go ahead. Very good uh, question, the yeah. meat industry. How important is the meat industry and consumption of meat? And if we were all to eat a lot less meat, would that make a difference? I, Nick, yeah. I think the estimates are that, that the livestock industry is like 15 to 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I may be slightly off, but it is a good chunk. Um, and I think it's, it is actually a fairly expensive way to help out uh, by eating less meat. Uh, I love bacon, but uh, I think, you know, if we're going to start thinking seriously about it, we need to, um, to be thinking about eating less meat. That's an easy way to do it. Yeah. Except that it would make absolutely no difference in terms of sea level rise. Mm. If you live in New Orleans or Miami or Bangkok or someplace like that, their, their problems are not going to be solved by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not a bad thing, but again, the distinction between mitigation, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions, and adaptation. There are a lot of cities that, a lot of locations where the only, only option is either adapt or retreat, or both. PD? Interestingly, a lot of the, there was a study done asking um, societies which would have an interest in that, with the vegan society, Friends of the Earth, you know, why don't you kind of campaign for this more strongly? And um, campaigning for you know vegetarian vegan lifestyle was something that char that charitable organisations weren't really keen to do because it would be challenging so much of the cultural identity, all of these perceptions. Um, so it kind of brings us all the way back to some of our earlier points that even though the science, even though the the mathematics might support it and say that it would. Um, have a positive benefit, although in some cases not a sufficiently positive benefit. Um, there might be more social, cultural reasons why it's not something that's pushed. Okay, I'm going to finish that's them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, William, yeah. First of all, I have a question for Eric. Hmm. Uh, climate change and the uh, population growth are the main challenge of international security, and the international community has tried several times to find solutions, but so far they have failed. Do you think this is due to the fact that we are living in a world uh, very diverse in terms of culture, uh, ethnicity, and religion? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I do think that uh, population increase is a factor in, uh, in climate change, and, and granted, a lot of the po world's population growth is occurring in parts of the world that don't have very high per capita emissions, so it's not an issue just yet, but if their uh, consumption increases, which I expect that it will, which is as it should be, uh, you know, that is an increasing issue. In particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, West Asia, um, where we're seeing the fertility, total fertility rate, which is the number of children a woman has in her, over her lifetime, stalling, usually we, as a country develops, the birth rate tends to fall, but we've seen a stall in, in a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa, which is I think partly down to um, ethnic and religious conflict and, and because of the, and partly due to the arrival of democracy, uh, there's, a, there's a strong incentive to try and keep your ethnic base, because most parties are ethnic, uh, buoyant and trying to encourage higher birth rates and obstruct family planning. So I think those are, yeah, I think it's an obstacle. Um, it's not an insuperable obstacle. I mean, we saw in Iran, uh, where the mullahs uh, and Khomeini approved uh, the religious edicts to, to, to introduce family planning, but there are other places where it's a real obstacle. So uh, 
I'm still optimistic, but I think, uh, yeah, there's no question it's a problem. That's funny. Okay, so the podcast uh, of today's session will be on our website, the Politics and uh, Geds website, soon. Uh, if you know people that wanted to be here but couldn't, please point them in that direction. Or, goodness, if you want to hear it again, uh, <laughs> do so. Uh, secondly, do, if you've been excited by the kinds of discussion that we've been having, consider applying for the Masters in Global Environmental Politics. Or, again, if you know people that might want to do so. Um, and thirdly, let me thank you for coming in your contributions, but especially our four panellists for really um, making us think about uh, and informing us, illuminating uh, aspects of, of politics of climate change. Thanks very much all.